Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. When one thinks of major security threats to the United States, it's pretty standard to conjure up images of hostile foreign armies or terrorist groups. Yet the U.S. military has begun to take into account a different sort of challenge to the country's security. Over the past decade, the Defense Department has increasingly recognized climate change as a source of global political instability, with the potential to displace populations and give rise to armed conflict. Climate change also challenges the military's preparedness, as weather extremes, wildfires, and flooding threaten military bases here and abroad. In fact, a Defense Department report released this January shows that two-thirds of critical military installations surveyed have suffered damage or operational disruptions linked to climate risks. Yet publicly, at least, the Pentagon has been quiet about climate change under a president and Congress that have largely opposed climate action. On today's podcast, we'll take a look at the risks climate change poses to military infrastructure and at the touchy intersection of climate politics and national security. Today's guest is Mark Nevitt, Sharswood Fellow and lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Mark is a former U.S. Navy pilot and attorney who served as the Department of Defense Regional Environmental Council in Norfolk, Virginia. Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Andy. Tell us, if you will, just to get started, about your background as a military attorney focused on environmental issues. Well, sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here in, in Steinberg Deidre Hall, where I actually got my start as an environmental attorney 20 years ago when I graduated from, from Wharton undergrad. I took a little bit of a different path. I did not go to Wall Street afterwards. I actually went to Navy flight school <laughs> following mm-hmm. Wharton. And then I spent some time flying Navy jets uh, in San Diego and then uh, became a JAG, a military attorney in the Department of Defense. And sort of the latter half of my career, I specialized in environmental law and had a real interest in in climate change uh, law. As an environmental attorney with the department, the military wrestles with just quite a few environmental issues. After all, it's the largest organization in the world. And as the region environmental council, I was in Norfolk, Virginia, during a very interesting time when we were wrestling with climate change, sea level rise, sort of when we started to reconceptualize climate change, not necessarily as just an environmental issue, but as a national security issue as well. In Norfolk, the seas are rising and the soil is sinking. And so largest naval station in the world, um, enormous um, importance for military readiness. So it's critically important to sort of wrestle with sort of the environmental considerations and impacts that we're undergoing there. Um, So I was involved in sort of an innovative intergovernmental panel on sea level rise across the community, state, local, federal, Department of Defense, that was trying to tackle this issue as it arose. And there's a lot of interest to that, particularly during the Obama administration. Broadly speaking, how is climate change a national security issue? Sure. So it's pretty broad, and it's hard to wrestle your hands around it a little bit. But I I like to frame it in three ways, which might be helpful for you and your listeners. Um, Climate adaptation, climate mitigation, and climate response. The first one is, is climate adaptation. That's fairly simple to kind of wrap your head around. Uh, That's just military installations being resilient to climate change's effects, such as sea level rise, recurrent flooding, things along those lines. And the classic case, I think, is is Norfolk, Virginia and Hampton Roads, the largest military um, sort of concentration of military installations in the world is there. But it's in a very flat part of Virginia. 
and it's sort of uniquely impacted by uh, climate change's effects. Um, climate adaptation also affects overseas resources. And the example I like to use is in the Marshall Islands. The Air Force actually has a radar station in a very um, uh, in the part of the Pacific that is valued at about a billion dollars. And so that is facing uh, sea level rise. People projected that may be underwater within two decades or and so. And that's a new installation. Is that correct? At least that radar station is? The radar station, I'm not sure the exact date, Andy, on, on that. But I do know that based upon climate modeling and the best climate science, uh, there are predictions that could be underwater within two decades. So that's of enormous concern because that's tax dollar <laughs> money mm-hmm. in the Marshall Islands. And the second one is, is climate mitigation. That's a little bit complicated um, in, in the Department of Defense um, because you have this notion of energy resiliency and operational energy. Climate mitigation, I think most of your listeners understand that as just, that's just the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. And the military, obviously, is an enormous consumer of energy and fossil fuels. Just think about all the, um, the fighter jets in the Air Force and uh, the, the fuel that those jets use. Um, and throughout the world, the Department of Defense is enormous just um, user of energy. Um, but related to that is this notion of operational energy and energy resiliency, which I think might be of interest to your listeners. That's domestically we have a military base that maybe loses its power. Uh, but it's still, you want to have that base continue its operations. So it may have to take steps to make it more resilient to respond to maybe an energy emergency. And overseas, you see that more of an operational environment where a military force, uh, think of a military force in Syria or Afghanistan that um, relies upon a long fuel supply line. And that is actually a vulnerability to that military force overseas. And the final one is just climate response. It's a kind of the third leg of climate change as a national security issue. Um, broadly speaking, I think of climate change as a threat accelerant and that it exacerbates existing weather events and environmental stressors. So a hurricane or wildfire may already be strong, but climate change actually makes it even stronger. And climate attribution science um, has been more and more polished to suggest this that. So at home, we are seeing that where the military is involved in what's called defense support to civil authorities, where the military actually uh, is helping out after humanitarian assistance uh, after a hurricane or a disaster. Think of Katrina, think of Hurricane Harvey, think of Hurricane Maria and, and Puerto Rico. Overseas or internationally, uh, climate change is changing the operational environment and how we respond to future military missions. We're seeing that somewhat in, in Syria. People have made the connection between the droughts that occurred in Syria and sort of the the, the complete breakdown in food insecurity mm-hmm. prior to the political situation unraveling. But you're also seeing it, in, it throughout the world. And the Arctic is another example where um, the Arctic is warming at two to three times the rate of the rest of the planet. So it's opening new trade routes and the possibility for natural resource extraction. So, of course, the United States military uh, and uh, all the Arctic nations are very interested in that new um, opening North Pole. Let's go to some specific uh, issues. 2018 was a busy year for climate change and our understanding of the national security impacts. Can you tell us specifically what happened last year? Sure. It was a, it was a busy year. It may have been the tipping point in, in, in our understanding of climate change's national security impacts. Of course, we started 2018 still recovering from Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, which caused billions of dollars in damage and cost many lives, unfortunately. Um, Reporting-wise, in October, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 
issued a report indicating that the window to address climate change is rapidly shrinking. And that was followed up one month later by the United States's Fourth National Climate Assessment, which is a U.S. report, which expressed further alarm about the national security effects of climate change. And the term national security is, is peppered throughout that report. And of course, while these reports were released, we had another devastating hurricane season in, in North Carolina, which harmed the military base at Camp Lejeune, one of the largest Marine Corps installations. And the Florida Gulf Coast um, also saw a hurricane that destroyed F-22 fighter jets at Tyndall Air Force mm-hmm. Base in the Florida Panhandle. The California wildfire season was a historically bad season, costing billions of dollars. Um, and so the climate science, the climate attribution science was further refined. We saw that firsthand, at least within the United States and, and Puerto Rico. Um, but there wasn't really any meaningful climate legislation in the United States, of course, is still in the process of withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accords. So it was a pretty sobering 2018, Andy. So, Mark, on January the 18th, the Department of Defense issued a report on the vulnerability of defense installations to climate change. The name of that report was Report on Effects of a Changing Climate to the Department of Defense. What was the genesis of the report? Sure. So the genesis of the report came from a National Defense Authorization Act. There is a provision, which is kind of a funding bill that Congress passes every year that funds the Department of Defense. And there was a specific provision, Section 335, known as the Langevin Amendment, named after the congressman from Rhode Island who um, incorporated that provision, which required the military essentially to provide a report to Congress to address um, future uh, cost to to climate change to include uh, a ranking of the military installations that are most vulnerable to climate change's effects. So, so what were some of the key takeaways of the report? Well, the report did acknowledge that the effects of a changing climate are a national security issue, and it did point it to several efforts that are ongoing and underway within the department to include several instructions and um, different regulations that are being incorporated. I didn't really have a lot of rigor and analytical detail that many were expected. Um, It listed 79, quote, unquote, uh, mission assurance priority installations, which is a large number, but those are presumably uh, most vulnerable to climate-related effects. But it remains, you know, Andy, really unclear what installations specifically are most at danger and really where we should be focusing our attention, our time, and resources. After all, Congress has a lot of power and authority. They fund the military. They have that constitutional authority. So they, Congress has a, re- a reason to know what uh, the future threats and the future installations are being most affected by climate change. It didn't reference existing climate reports and documents. I was disappointed in this. We just had the National Climate Assessment, which came out in November. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had a new report in October. It didn't engage with the most recent climate science and did not engage with the most recent climate reports. Uh, Finally, it didn't reference costs at all. Congress required this by law in Section 335 of the amendment. So we don't really have a good sense of what the costs to build a more climate-resilient future at military installations would look like. I read the report as well. It was just 22 pages long. Uh, And one of the requirements, per my understanding, was that it had to list the 10 most vulnerable installations per service arm. It didn't do that. Uh, But it seemed like some of the, 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 the installations it listed were almost taken randomly, and there were some installations that were severely damaged by hurricane within the last year or two, those weren't mentioned at all? 
Right. I was surprised to see Camp Lejeune and Tyndall Air Force Base not on the list. Um, and I'm not sure if I would necessarily classify the bases as, as randomly. There was, there was certainly many installations that people expected to be on there, Norfolk Naval Station, um, Langley, other sort of uh, bases that are very much in the news. But again, Tyndall and Camp Lejeune, which suffered extreme weather from hurricanes, were not on there. I think part of the problem, Andy, is that the report used factors in looking at its base vulnerability, flooding, desertification, drought. It did not address really extreme weather, uh, which is accelerated by uh, climate-related effects. So Tyndall and Camp Lejeune were not part of that. I was disappointed to see that. Might we expect this to spur some action? Well, Congress certainly wasn't happy. At least the senior congressional leaders were not happy, Andy, (laughs) after the report came out. For people who were who follow climate security issues very closely, there really wasn't a lot of new information in this report. It's just 22 pages. It costs over $300,000 to taxpayers. It was a month late. And then it sort of uh, lands on the desk of Congress um, with kind of a thud. Uh, Senator Reid from Rhode Island said that this had as much value of, of a phone, as a phone book because there was really nothing there that he didn't already know. Uh, Representative Langevin, I think, knew all this as well. So we'll see if there's more hearings. Arguably, the, the, this report did not comply with um, the letter and spirit of the law by not addressing the rankings, by not addressing the costs. So Congress can essentially make DOD do its homework again. Now, I know you're no longer in the military and that you're not privy to some of the discussions, obviously, that go on. But I just want to ask these questions uh, following just to, to get your, your insight. So, so a year ago on uh, in January of 2018, the Department of Defense released the results of a survey, it was called the Infrastructure Vulner- Vulnerability Report, that found that half of American military installations are vulnerable to extreme weather and climate risks. Not that different from what this, this latest report shows. Early versions of the report mentioned climate change, but the mentions were scrubbed from the final report, as were maps showing vulnerable installations. Again, the 2018 National Defense Strategy, which is the overarching look at the defense strategy for the U.S. military, was also scrubbed clean of any mention of climate change. Looks like we're seeing a trend here. How would you characterize the Defense Department's current overall position itself in terms of acknowledging and addressing climate change? Well, I don't think it's necessarily a coherent strategy. We saw a lot of um, foreign movement during the Obama administrations on their Secretary Secretary Hagel, Secretary Carter, being very forward-looking in their major policy documents, the the adoption of the Climate Adaptation Roadmap, which is sort of a very forward-looking federal agency document that addressed how the Department of Defense will uh, plan for and adapt to a climate change-driven future. So I, but I do think there's sort of a two-tiered thing going on where the very high levels, the President Trump obviously has not been very good on climate, which drew from Paris, um, has famously tweeted that climate change is a hoax, <laughs> uh, unclear exactly how he feels about whether or not climate change is caused by, by humans. But there is, and this report did state this, there are a lot of efforts going on related to climate-related effects. Um, there's new instructions, there's, there's new installation management guides that have been, frankly, um, uh, forthcoming or promulgated under the current administration. So on the day-to-day kind of worker bee level, I think there is a lot of important work uh, going on. Um, and this report, I think, sort of tried to thread the needle between 
you know, White House lack of interest in this issue and also the military's focus on planning for the future. What about Congress? Congress has there's no line item in the defense budget for climate change. Has, has Congress exercised the power of the purse on military climate issues? So sure, you know, it's a, it's a good point. And it's sort of a dual powers here, right? The executive branch has the commander in chief power under the Constitution. He takes care that the laws are faithfully executed. But Congress has the power of the purse, as you correctly <laughs> state. Uh, under Article One. Congress has the constitutional authority that's not delegated to the president to raise and support armies and provide and maintain a Navy. So there's not a special line item within um, congressional appropriations for climate change per se, but we are seeing um, in this yearly funding bill that Congress, as to pass that bill, there has to be a report, for example, from, uh, from the Department of Defense about uh, vulnerabilities to uh, military installations. So that was, that's Congress in some sense indirectly using its power of the purse to get what it wants on climate change or get, get some transparency and some information on climate change. Um, and Congress, of course, has the constitutional authority to fund the military and military construction projects. So, you know, this report and other things could be sort of the, the, the basis for a larger discussion of Congress maybe using its power of the purse more proactively. Yeah, I'd like to get back to your uh, experience as the Regional Environmental Counsel for the Department of Defense in Norfolk, Virginia. What kinds of issues and challenges did you see while there? And what are the specific threats facing Hampton Roads? I know we talked a little bit about the land subsiding and the sea rising, but can you talk a little bit more about what the, the threats to the base are? So sure. So as a general matter, um, cl- you know, climate change wasn't really part of my portfolio <laughs> when I was there from 2012 to 2015. Um, so I, as a general matter, I kind of helped coordinate all environmental legal issues, environmental compliance issues uh, from clean water, coastal zone management, all, all federal and state compliance with environmental regulations uh, in Hampton Roads and in, and in Norfolk. Environmental law, as a side note, is kind of a fascinating area as it relates to uh, the military because – uh, all these core laws actually have broad waivers of sovereign immunity. When what that means is that the military actually complies with state, local, and federal laws mm-hmm. as you can, as long as you can um, tie that back to a statute. So the Clean Water Act, for example. Um, so the military isn't immune to any of this. There's not a blanket exemption from these. From it's just kind of unique. Uh, in, in, in that sense, and also uh, the state and locality perspective. So a military base in Norfolk would have to comply with local Norfolk clean water guidelines and state of Virginia guidelines. So we kind of have a reverse federalism that's occurring at the military base. But, you know, I was there with beyond the compliance. We were seeing inf- interest in sea level rise and um, recurrent flooding. Just my first day of work, I remember in Norfolk, I actually couldn't get home because of recurrent flooding on Hampton Boulevard, mm-hmm. which is the main <laughs> road that enters the largest naval station, you know, in the world. And so um, so that was this sort of genesis of uh, trying to do more on addressing kind of the longer term impacts of, of, of sea level rise and climate change there. This is looking ahead. Um, <laughs> obviously, the, the, the issues there are pretty severe. Will Hampton Roads at some point need to be in part or wholly abandoned? So I think the military doesn't like to probably use the term <laughs> abandoned. And that's a pretty yeah. – I'm not comfortable asking that question, yeah. but I feel like it has to be asked. <laughs> no, I know. It's, it's, it's a fair question. People have asked it. I think that the notion of retreat or abandon has a special <laughs> connotation in the military. So my, my, my personal opinion, and I don't have any inside baseball on this, but it will not be in the short term, no. 
But there is sort of a recognition that what we do today could it really needs to be put in place to um, ensure kind of the safety and future of all the bases in the Hampton Roads community. It's not just um, Norfolk Naval Station. It's Langley Air Force Base, Norfolk Naval Shipyard, Little Creek, Dam Neck is enormous. Virginia uh, has Oceana uh, Navy Fighter uh, Jet Station. Um, so, the, But there's a long-term concern that bases are exposed to sea level rise and climate change's effects, which is, I think, why we're having this discussion in 2018. So in 2038, we're not saying we need to move on. Mm-hmm. The U.S. military is focused mostly on adapting to climate change, and, and you spoke about that early on in, in this conversation. As the largest consumer of fossil fuels in the world, is there much the military can or should do to mitigate climate change? Well, I think it's an important question, as you correctly state, that the Department of Defense is a large consumer of fossil fuels. And again, the military has been sort of highly incentivized to look at this notion of energy resiliency and operational energy because the incentives are aligned in that that becomes a uh, a negative or a vulnerability on the ba- on the battlefield if you're too reliant upon traditional fossil fuel supply lines. And a military base that goes dark here because they're not energy resilient, that's also a vulnerability. So there's been a lot of interest in alternative energy and just sort of making sure the military base uh, can withstand um, sort of an energy shutdown, for lack of a better term. Um, the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions is a bit more complicated. Um, the Paris Accord that the U.S. is in the process of withdrawing from, there was no sort of general opt-out provision for the military as part of the reporting requirements. It kind of relied upon each country to report um, on its uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But it was interesting to me that as a baseline, as part of the discussion, you know, military activities are not going to be sort of exempt from, you know, the international legal framework as it's being set forward these days. So it's, it's an interesting question to wrestle with how the, mil, you know, if we were to come back into Paris, you know, any sort of further domestic legislation on climate, how that would impact um, the Department of Defense. We have to wrestle with that, I think, uh, just because it's such an enormous emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. Let me ask you a final question here, if I may. The military has a history of being at the leading edge of American society in, in some important respects. Uh, a notable example of this was when it racially integrated the armed forces at a time when Jim Crow laws were still on the books in many places in this country. Do you see leadership parallels on climate in this day and age? I think there could be parallels and some positive externalities. Um, I don't necessarily see any really any cons. Some people sort of worry with the military. They're sort of two different worlds on, in some respects. If you view it simplistically, the national security world and the environmental world. Um, but some people have believed that there is sort of a militarization of climate change with the military being involved in this. But I think that's really f- simplistic and does not really truly understand uh, the military's mission sets and its sort of duty to plan for changes in the future environment. And much of what the military does um, is not is responding to humanitarian assistance. So, you know, being part of that discussion is, is critically important. So, I think as there's more conversation between what I will call the climate change public interest community and the national security community, those trusts and those bonds will only build and grow. And the pros are, are many actually for the military um, in terms of 
um, you know, being sort of a validator. It's largely apolitical. It's a very well-respected uh, institution. It's very pragmatic. The culture of the military is planning. <laughs> it's planning, planning, planning. And climate change sort of fits within this broader um, planning culture. We don't know exactly what the effects will be long-term, but you do know the world's going to change. And how are we going to change for uh, that world. The military never really has perfect intelligence, perfect information. They just know the world is going to be transformed and changed long term. Climate change, to me, sort of fits neatly into that that paradigm. And of course, the military is the largest employer of in the world. There's some positive externalities, I think, outside the military and having the military investing in alternative energy and climate resilient investment, uh, or rather infrastructure. Um, you know, the internet was a DOD funded project in the Cold War era, space race, enormous advances in uh, nanotechnology and semiconductors. So I'm a glass half full guy, Andy, <laughs> on this issue. So I remain optimistic despite the current sort of strategic uh, pause on climate change that the military's innovation and know-how can play an important role. Mark, thanks very much for talking. Great to be here. Thanks. Today's guest has been Mark Nevitt, Sharswood Fellow and Lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and the former Department of Defense Regional Environmental Council in Norfolk, Virginia. For more insights into energy and environmental policy, take a look at the Climate Center for Energy Policy's website, where you'll find research blogs and upcoming events all related to these issues. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu, and our Twitter handle is at climateenergy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 